Because you get that legend is a phrase bandied around sport far too easily. Because you get that politics is more about what's possible. Because you get that a cryptic clue can have a simple solution. Because you get the benefit of hearing other opinions. The Irish Times. Because you get it. Enjoy unlimited access to informed opinion and real news. Visit irishtimes.com and get the first month for just one euro. T's and C's apply. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Saturday, July 24th, 1982. It is two days since Malcolm MacArthur has viciously attacked a young nurse, Bridie Gargan, in the Phoenix Park in Dublin. Over 30 detectives have crowded into an incident room that has been set up in Kevin Street Gorda Station. It is on the south side of the city, and the building dates back 800 years. In a stuffy, clammy room, Senior Gordy lay out the strange circumstances of what has occurred and the extraordinary level of violence. Appearances can be deceptive, Malcolm MacArthur, with his bow ties, cravats and reserved shy manner, did not fit any profile of a crazed killer. To those who knew him, to employ the old saying, he gave the impression that butter would not melt in his mouth. He would have come across as an absolute gentleman. We interviewed people that had known him. They couldn't believe it. And I think that they thought it would, that there was an awful mistake, that he was the wrong man for these awful crimes. The manner in which the poor nurse had been attacked, I mean, it, it was frenzy, yeah. Weird, grotesque, unusual, bizarre, the goo I'm Harry McGee of The Irish Times, and this is episode two of Goo a seven-part series looking at one of the most infamous murder cases in Ireland and how it almost brought down the government of Charles Haughey 40 years ago. It wasn't called Watergate in, in the Irish context, it was called Gubu. Gubu, famous words, grotesque, unprecedented, bizarre and uh, unbelievable. It was grotesque, it was unbelievable, it was bizarre, it was unprecedented. It was a Gubu situation and Haughey was right in the middle of it. People, you know, saw all kind of conspiracies during that 81, 82. It was crazy stuff for I me. Mean, the place became a bit crazy for a year or two. In the last episode, we heard how Malcolm MacArthur had made his escape that day after his attack on Bridie Gargan. With the young nurse dying in the back seat, he drove to the south of the city and abandoned the car. He then went into a travel agent's and asked for a taxi to Dunlira, 15 kilometres to the south. Instead, he hopped on a passing bus that took him to the north side of the city. In a pub, he shaved off his beard and ordered a taxi to Black Rock, another suburb close to Dunleary. After that, the trail ran cold. 
John O'Mahony was a 25-year-old novice detective who was called into that conference in Kevin Street, Gortha Station that Saturday. His partner was Detective Frank Hand, another rookie aged only 24 at the time. Frank Hand, who was my partner at the time, we'd been at a funeral down in the west of Ireland and we were coming back in the afternoon and we saw the activity in the Phoenix Park. We knew then there had been a serious attack there, but, you know, we... we We'll find out in time, but we actually did find out later on on that day or Friday. It was our first really serious case that we were going to be on. As it happened, tragedy befell Frank Hand only two years later. He was shot dead by the IRA during an armed robbery. Frank and myself went to Kevin Street and at that stage the team were well assembled. O'Mahony was now swimming in the deep end, roped into a major investigation. At that point, Bridie Gargan was still alive but already Gordy were fully aware of the import of the attack. The frenzied nature of the assault was a particular concern to the Gorda. Chief Superintendent Brogan at the time said it looks like the work of a madman. Yeah, it was frenzied, yeah. Like Tony Hickey, John O'Mahony would rise to the highest ranks of the Gorda Shiokana, retiring as an assistant commissioner. But then he was one of the youngest members of the detective team. John O'Mahony is my name. I'm a native of Cork. In 1982, I was five years in the Guards and appointed a detective in May of 1982. Started out in the Vice Squad, which was all nights, and there was a street prostitution around Burlington Road and Fitzwilliam Square and in around the Pepper Canister. All gone now? All gone, I presume. At that time, despite the fact that there wasn't a huge amount of, uh, I suppose, serious crime, there was a very good system in place. So the conference finished. Because of the nature of the attack, the job was to go to the, uh, to the mental health hospitals. It just so happened there was a psychiatric hospital just up the road from Kevin Street, St. Patrick's Hospital. We were going for a cup of tea and we were passing St. Patrick's Hospital, so we said, look, we'll start here. And we went in. And the man that was in charge at that time was a doctor. And we told him... What we were looking for gave him a description of the, the person and he said, that man is here. He came in on, I think it was Thursday night. He said, but you can't talk to him. He's in a secure ward and he's not very well. He's heavily sedated, all of the rest of it. So we used his phone, his landline, to ring the incident room in Kevin Street. O'Mahony refers to Detective Superintendent John Courtney here. He was essentially leading this investigation. The doctor repeated the story to John Courtney and... We were told to go on and to keep our mouth shut and not to tell anybody. We thought we had solved the crime or whatever, but, you know, these leads that you get, they run into the sand after a day or maybe a week or, or whatever. And all through my career, I've seen, seen that happening. But when it's your first time, you're kind of saying, well, maybe, maybe, maybe it's right, you know. It's three o'clock. The police in Belfast have released the name of the man shot dead by the IRA. When the police arrived, petrol bombs were thrown at them. They retaliated with plastic bullets and when the youth was struck. Three RUC men are in hospital in Belfast after a rocket attack in the west of the city. Not too far away, across the border in Northern Ireland, a violent and cruel conflict was continuing that would ultimately claim 3,000 lives. Dublin was, to a certain extent, cocooned from all that. There was no shortage of crime, however, including in the deprived area of the south inner city, including the flat complexes of Fatima Mansions 
and St. Teresa's Gardens. It was a totally different city than it is now. We would have had some murders, which was very unusual. Gangland crime was just, I suppose, in its infancy. Then in the early 80s, the flats in the inner city, the south inner city, were literally no-go areas for the guards. They'd be bricked out of it from the balconies. Within two years, I'd say, around 80, 82, 83, certainly, guards could drive up and down any of those areas with the sirens on and the blue lights on, and all you got was young lads looking at you with a glazed kind of face, and all they were interested in at that stage was where was the next fix coming from. Dublin was beginning to experience the malaise of other big cities with the influx of hard drugs. But even then, the most serious of all crimes, homicide, was a relatively rare occurrence. But over the course of that July weekend, there were four different murders, which was highly, highly unusual. Here's Peter Murtha, co-author with Joe Joyce of The Boss, then security correspondent of the Irish Times. Between the, uh, July the 24th and the 26th, so that's, that's two days, there were four people murdered. So even today, that would have a big impact, but it had a, a, a larger impact uh, then. And you're, you're right, there was Patricia Furlong up in uh, Rathfarnham in the foothills of the Dublin mountains, and there was Robert Belton, who was connected, as you say, to the Fine Gael family. And then there was uh, uh, Donald Dunn and, and Bridie Gargan. So four violent, quite shocking killings uh, in the space of, of two days. And yes, my memory as a security correspondent was that there was extreme anxiety, extreme anxiety amongst the public and extreme anxiety amongst uh, the Garda Síochána, naturally enough, who are charged with ensuring public safety and, and solving crimes. So suddenly they had four murders uh, on their plate, as it were, in a matter of a couple of days. For the moment, the team in Kevin Street focused on the Bridie Gargan attack. The gardener, Paddy Byrne, had given a very good description of the assailant, including his clothing. Then reports started coming in about a man who had been acting suspiciously earlier in July, in the weeks before the attack on Bridie Gargan. The sightings happened at two clay pigeon shooting clubs. The first was at Balheary in North Dublin. The second was in Ashburn, just across the border in County Meath. One club member in Balheary, speaking back in 1983, said this man who appeared at the shooting grounds seemed like a very strange character. I actually saw him coming to the field and then later I saw him in the field. He took my notice because of his unusual stance and uh, dress. Now, the witness accounts from the two clay pigeon shooting clubs directed the Gorda investigation into the North County. Here are the detectives Tony Hickey and John O'Mahony. At this stage, there were a whole lot of other people doing all kinds of different inquiries. There was a focus in North County Dublin because people out there had noticed the strange man hanging around. It was at Balheary and Ashburn, clay pigeon shooting events. He was looking for a gun. He was looking for a gun. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. 
Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Four murders have taken place over the course of that July weekend. Now one of those other killings began to pique the interest of detectives investigating Bridie Gargan's murder. It happened over 60 kilometers away from the Phoenix Park in Edenderry, a small town in County Offaly with a peaceful bucolic setting. It sits near the banks of the Grand Canal. To the west of the town is the vast Bog of Allen, mentioned most famously in the closing pages of James Joyce's classic short story, The Dead. My name is Henry Burrows. I'm a retired Leinster Leader journalist. I joined the Leinster Leader in 1980. It was my first job. And I was assigned to cover the Edenderry area. It's a relatively small town, and like it was just beyond the Kildare border, which sort of probably, in people's psychologically anyway, put it into the Midlands. At that time, people would have known everybody uh, around town. Back then, it was a far remove from Dublin. It was a town, as Henry Boris said, where everybody knew everybody else. A young farmer and clay pigeon shooting enthusiast, Donald Dunn, had advertised a shotgun for sale in the Evening Press newspaper. A man had contacted him to say he was interested in buying the gun. It was two days after the nurse, Bridie Gargan, had been savagely attacked. Tony Hickey and John O'Mahony recall what happened. And as it happened, the perpetrator there had got a bus down on the Saturday. Prior to that, he'd made an excuse about not going down, that his brother was involved in a traffic accident, a non-existent brother. This was significant because it would not be the first or last time the suspect would refer to a phantom brother or accomplice to victims or would-be victims. As John O'Mahony recalls, the man cancelled the appointment only hours after Bridie Gargan had been attacked. He had an appointment with Dunn, but he had rang on towards the night to say, something has happened here, I can't make it down. I'll be down later in the, the week. The man, of course, was Malcolm MacArthur, in his Inspector Clouseau disguise of thick glasses, a cap and a jacket that was too heavy for the warm weather. MacArthur came to Edenderry on the Saturday night. So I think it was July the 24th. He was due to meet Donald Dunn on, on the Sunday morning. So, so he was noticed that evening, unusual dress, bohemian kind of look, some people described it as, and a bit aimless maybe, and he, he was down by the canal. I've never found out where he actually stayed uh, overnight, but some suggestions were that it was uh, around the harbour area. 
And the strange thing was for me, which I found a bit chilling afterwards, was that uh, I, at the time, rented an apartment uh, at the harbour. It literally overlooked the end of the harbour. So I'm standing in the harbour area of Eden Derry. It's essentially a spur of the Grand Canal. The canal runs about two kilometres south of the town. But there's a channel that comes right up to the main street and then follows a circular path until it stops here at what's called the harbour. It's a very peaceful spot, uh, flanked by trees which are in full bloom. And it's to this spot, on that Saturday in July 1982, that Malcolm MacArthur came in the evening and reputedly spent the night here. It looked as if he spent the night on the park bench, beautiful weather again, nice uh, heat wave. And on the Sunday morning, he bought the Sunday Independent, he bought an orange, I think, and uh, maybe another bottle of water, and he was seen reading the paper. And then he was gone. Donald Dunn was going to sell his gun and watch the hurling game between Offaly and Kilkenny. His brother Christy Dunn recalled the final conversation he had with his brother on that Sunday morning. The recording comes from a 2005 RTE documentary. Donald was contacted by Malcolm MacArthur from Dublin, uh, as far as I remember, on a Tuesday. And he stopped on his way by to tell me he was going off to sell this gun. Uh, but typical of him, he wouldn't want me to know what he was going to get for it. Uh, uh, I asked him, you know, would I go with him? And he said, no, he'd, he'd go on his own, but he'd maybe call on the way back. And that was actually the last time I saw him. So the main street here in Edenderry is very long and quite wide, almost like an esplanade. And Malcolm MacArthur walked from the harbour down to the post office on that Sunday morning where he was picked up by Donald Dunn. Donald Dunn, he arranged to meet him at around 10.30 at the post office and the post office is located in, in the town centre. Donald was a, a member of a, a clay pigeon shooting club. That's where they went. And they went in Donald Dunn's car so that the gun could be uh, tried out. I'm standing on the Rathangan Road, a few miles outside Edenderry. This is peat country. The Bog of Allen extends from here south to County Kildare, across County Offaly and into County West Meath. It was also here that Edenderry Gun Club had a firing range. And Donald Dunn took Malcolm MacArthur here on that Sunday morning in July 1982 to demonstrate his Maruka shotgun. Donald Dunn loaded his beautiful Maruka shotgun, which he was selling for whatever reason. He gave it to the prospective buyer, who I think fired a shot at the target, and then obviously shot Donald Dunn. And, and a horrible, horrible case, callous, terrible, terrible case. It was a massive shock. The Dunn family were very well known in the area. And Donald Dunn was only 27 at the time uh, before his life was, was taken. It was shocking. It's still shocking now, four decades later. It made no sense. Donald Dunn died instantly that Sunday morning. Brady Gargan finally succumbed to her injuries the following day, Monday, July the 26th. Tony Hickey says it's important to put what happened into a proper context. 
Perhaps, you know, with all the furore subsequently, you know, the families have been forgotten maybe to a large extent. And I mean, they got life sentences yeah. on the Sunday and on the, I think it was the Monday when Brady Gargan died. Both of the victims were 27 years of age. Both were single. The injustice, the heartbreaking travesty of it has not diminished for their loved ones over time. We made contact with both the Gargan and Dunn families, but both have decided separately not to speak publicly about the deaths of Bridie Gargan or Donald Dunn at this time. 20 days later, the killer would give this account of what had occurred on the Ratangan Road as part of a 21-page written statement. We got out of the car and Mr. Dunn took the gun from the boot. It was in a case. He told me that he didn't really have to sell the gun, but that if he got what he paid for it, that he would sell it. He told me it cost him £1,100, but he would not sell it at a loss. I wanted a gun badly, but I did not want to buy it. Er, I could not buy it. Mr Dunn put two cartridges into the gun, and I shot at a target, which was a white post. I was trying to think of a way of getting this gun without paying for it. I was playing for time. Mr Dunn then got a bit angry and reached out and put his hand on some part of the gun to take it. I pulled back and pulled the trigger and shot him in the head. He fell down. I ran towards Mr. Dunn's silver car. The dress and demeanour and accent of the stranger had already aroused suspicions amongst the Gordi. Tony Hickey outlines how links were quickly established between the two seemingly disparate cases. I suppose one of the things about coordination is that People from the murder squad were also uh, in uh, Eden Derry investigating in that case, and there was uh, interaction between the two, and I remember notes were swapped. And it began to seem, on the face of it, that the same man may well be the common denominator. But again, despite inquiries, that could, there was no obvious connection, and there never was between Barry Gargan and Donald Dunn, except I think they were both from farming families, maybe. Then in Derry, uh, the inquiries revealed, you know, it's a small uh, provincial town and uh, people notice strangers. Most of the descriptions of Malcolm MacArthur at the time indicate that he stood out from the crowd and if anybody spoke to him then there was accents involved and all that and it helped, I think, people to maybe put two and two together. Witnesses had told Gordy the stranger had bought a carton of milk and the Sunday Independent on the morning of Donald Dunn's shooting. When they discovered that he had been there, they searched the, the dustbin beside the canal and they retrieved the Sunday Independent, which revealed finger mark. And there already had been a mark developed on the polythene, which was wrapping the shovel in the Phoenix Park, which he had left at the scene beside a tree. So here again, that had rung alarm bells early on because of the circumstances of the Phoenix Park and the shovel. Detectives generally came to the conclusion God, this guy, it looks as if he's going to kill people for whatever reason, and he's going to bury them, which again was uh, completely impractical because the shovel he had wouldn't dig a grave in a fortnight in the middle of a heat wave. How could you have dug a grave in the Phoenix Park? There were other similarities, all pointing to the same unusual perpetrator in both fatal assaults. Not your typical uh, criminal that you would be chasing normally. Nice tan, good head of wavy hair. He seemed to come from outside the sphere of what might constitute a usual suspect. 
Kind of outside the rules of the game that you would normally encounter because criminals do things that normally make sense, not always. And here was this guy. And in your wildest dreams, you wouldn't imagine that somebody in an attempt to acquire a car, which fellas on the street could hotwire, you know, um, in, in minutes. Would kill a human being to get it, but kill he did. This is Bertie Ahern's recollection of the fear this case generated amongst the public. A man shot dead and a nurse killed in broad daylight. So once the Gardaí had, had linked the, the, the murders, there was extraordinary fear then. There was a real concern that, that there was someone serious at, at bay. And this was into, into high summer and, and what was a good summer as well. This savage killer with the upper crust accent had materialised as suddenly and shockingly as a meteorite. I asked if the Gardaí were nonplussed at this stage as to the suspect the connections, the motive. Tony Hickey and John O'Mahony respond by name-checking John Courtney, who led this investigation. He was a controversial character because of allegations he allowed heavy-handed treatment of suspects. But he was also a very thorough investigator. This was probably his most celebrated case. Late John Courtney, uh, he had a habit of saying at conferences, I don't want theories, I want evidence. You know, you follow the evidence. It really was, like it was, for the most part, it was certainly from 8 o'clock in the morning until 10, 11, 12 o'clock at night, you were just focused on the jobs you had to do. You wouldn't be reading the papers or you wouldn't watch the television maybe that much. Maybe you'd watch the news, but you wouldn't be obsessively reading what other people were saying. You'd be focused. The Gorda operation by this stage had scaled up greatly. There were probably up to 50 detectives at any given time working, doing inquiries all over the place. A lot of focus had not gone to Dublin because of the clay pigeons. In one of those days, there was air support uh, got from the army where a chopper was sent up to try and uh, trace this fellow. Another uh, wild goose chase. This was 1982. There were no mobile phones, DNA technology had not been developed, there were zero CCTV cameras and no computerised databases. I asked Tony Hickey, were they hampered by rudimentary technology? We weren't in the Stone Age. There had been men on the moon, you know, a decade before that. And I know things are different now. There's better legislation. You have um, IT and all kinds of technology. But police work boils down to interacting with people and following leads and uh, footwork on the street and on the ground. Uh, we're well used to uh, false leads and wild goose chases, and that's all part of the game. John O'Mahony spent an inordinate amount of time during that purgatorial hot summer chasing up one particular false lead. Along with his colleagues Tony Hickey and Kevin Tunney, he spent days and days in the southeast of the country trying to follow a lead. He was a travelling Bible salesman who did not live up to the standards of the books he sold. He seems to have scammed his way up and down the east coast at will. We had a suspect who was named by a member of the public and given about six different reasons as to why he committed this murder. He was a Bible salesman, wasn't he? Seller, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he travelled the country and he proved extremely difficult to rule out. Really difficult. He had travelled the country that week. He'd pay for nothing. He didn't have money to pay for anything. So he needed petrol. He took off the number of plates of the car. He drove into a petrol station took petrol, he went into a bed and breakfast, he left without paying, that sort of thing all, all week. 
but um, he said he was selling Bibles between Arklow and Gorey and we had everything ruled out except the critical three hours on that Thursday afternoon. We interviewed him, he wouldn't tell us. Essentially, when you're tracking somebody, you, you either had to phone them at home or you had to call out to their house. Call, I'd say call to the house more than phoning, yeah. The, and again, the sweltering heat. Like, I mean, that, was, that was a summer, really, of sweltering heat. But uh, we were trudging the road between Gorey and, and Arklow on that Saturday afternoon. You, you didn't have contact at the time. Like, nobody, nobody could contact you. You were, you were gone. You know, when you were in Gorey, you were, you were gone. Malcolm MacArthur drove Donald Dunn's Ford Escort from the lonely spot on the Rathangan Road in through Eden Derry and eventually arrived into Dublin city centre. Unbeknownst to him, he had been followed. Again, the things that happen in real life, awfully supporters who didn't really know where the best way to Croke Park followed that car because it had an awfully rage and assuming it was someday where else would it be going in Dublin except to Croke Park and they followed it and were able to give a description of the guy that left the car. He took stuff out of the car in a, a, a refuse sack or so he cleaned out the car or something like that. But anyway, it was another common denominator of the behaviour. After killing two people, Malcolm MacArthur had now abandoned two cars. And among the items he took from the Ford Escort was a rare Maruka shotgun. However, nobody could discover where he had gone after that. All traces of him seem to have evaporated in the heat of that long, dry summer. And later on that day, a family from Dublin were having a picnic. Children went foraging in the wood and found Donald Dunn's body. Awful. I mean, just a seven-year-old boy found the body, which That's is just right. terrible, just even to think about it 40 years later. In the mindset, I suppose, as well, it's very hard to understand, like, you seriously bludgeon somebody on Friday and instead of laying low, you shoot a person in cold blood on Sunday and then you continue on your aim a week or so later and you, there's no sense of, very hard to, <laughs> it's very hard to understand that. Next time on Gubu, who was Malcolm MacArthur? Where did he come from? What kind of life did he lead? How did this introverted aristocrat become a callous killer? And what was Malcolm MacArthur's connection with Charlie Hawhey, the Taoiseach or Prime Minister of Ireland? Gubu is an Irish Times audio production. It was written, produced and presented by myself, Harry McGee, the editor of Gubu was Enda O'Dowd. The executive editor and senior producer of audio at the Irish Times is Declan Conlon. Sound mix was by JJ Vernon. Graphics was by Paul Scott. The title music was by Oracle. We thank the RTE Archives, Reuters, the Jimmy Carter Library, the Ronald Reagan Library and the Oireachtas TV Archive. For further comprehensive coverage of the Gubu scandal, including articles, notes, photographs, and maps, visit irishtimes.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 
luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Also, if you enjoyed this podcast and would like to support future long-term projects, please consider subscribing at irishtimes.com forward slash subscribe.